Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And this week we're talking about cultural norms surrounding the internet and technology. Essentially, a lot of people our age, so I'm thinking mid-twenties-ish, we know how to act around each other's computers and mobile phones, and we know how to be polite. But there's this huge difference in generations and in ages where sometimes someone just, like, touches your computer without asking. (laughs) And that's bad. (laughs) Not okay. (laughs) That's so bad. Sometimes the way we talk on the internet is just seen as completely incomprehensible to people older or even younger than us. I know every time I go home, my parents ask me to look up their friends on Facebook and then go, why don't they have all this information public, Sophia? (laughs) So that's something we can dig into a little bit deeper. But yeah, yeah, so today we're mostly talking about the way we engage with technology, but also how the way we engage differs between generations and upbringings and backgrounds. And Serena had a few things she wanted to start off on here, so I will hand over to you. Ooh, did I? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Like, tell me a bit more about the things that you think are unspoken social norms surrounding our devices, our personal devices and technology, and stuff that you found people in different generations just don't quite understand. Like you did mention that a colleague started touching your screen and we were both like, oh, that's not okay. Yeah, so before we started, I was telling a story about how a colleague that I work with currently, we have computers at work, work laptops that are our own, but they're work laptops and they have touch screens. And when my colleague wants to go to a different place in the document, they'll just touch my screen. And I hate that. Like, I hate that so much. And it makes me Mm. wildly uncomfortable. And I don't know how to explain to this colleague who is, you know, 10, 15 years older than me, that touching someone else's computer, like, even if it's just their screen, like, not even their keyboard, like, no, you don't do any of that. I very much will always ask someone before I touch or use their computer. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it will be in a kind of asking way where it's like they've asked me to explain something to them and I can't explain it. I can only do it. Um, Mm. But I'll still say, is it okay if I drive or can I just show you? And I have so many colleagues who, again, are like, you know, 10, 15 plus years older than me who just don't ask that, who just do it. And it makes me feel horrible. It's stuff like if... I let my parents use my computer or my phone. Whenever we travel, mum loves checking her email on my phone. (laughs) I will open incognito tabs for them so that they won't be logged into all of my stuff. And had I just given it to my parents, she'd be like, why is there Facebook here? Can I just use your Facebook, Sophia? And I mean, at least bless my mum would ask, but that's Mm. still just like this huge cultural thing where it's like, if someone lent me their computer to work on, I'd open an incognito tab. Like, I would just make it so that I wasn't automatically logged into their things. I would never look at their social media. Like, those are such, like, they're so ingrained in me as, like, core politenesses. Yeah. And, like, there are very few people in my life who would even let text on my phone, right? Like, um, I have one friend in Dunedin who, like, if I was doing something else and I needed to send a text, I'd just, like, pass my phone to her and I'd be like, hey, can mm. you just send this text to this person? I need to focus on this. And there's yeah. no one else in my life who I would let no. do that. <laughs> 
my yeah, like my parents really would expect that. I think a lot of people of their kind of generation would, and I think like even yeah, people who are in their thirties just don't get that there is that really strict line where you're like, you don't touch <laughs> someone else's computer. Having said that, I do want to add the caveat that like people are in you know their thirties, their forties who are nerds mm-hmm. probably understand that because I think it's a very similar concept to like in um in tabletop role-playing games where, like, you don't touch someone else's dice. Yeah. It's a similar kind of thing behind that, that sort of, like, oh, no, like, this is your thing. This is, like, where so much of your life is stored. Like, I'm not going to touch it. The problem with dice is if you, like, use someone else's dice, you'll use up the luck. But, like, that's (laughs) that's another, like, long protracted discussion we can have about how weird gaming culture is. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, what about you, Serena? What are your thoughts on that? Um, Something that I'm reminded of when you were saying that is, you know, when you go on Facebook and you see comments from like maybe your parents or like just generally older family and friends and they'll be logged under one person, but they'll sign off as a different person. Like a couple will share a Facebook account, that kind of thing. Like your mum will use your dad's Facebook account and say, oh, they always say, hi, Sophia, this is such a lovely image. Um, remember when this, this, and this happened? All the best, mum. <laughs> you know those kinds of Facebook comments? Yeah. And it makes me wonder if there's a generational or even just like comfort with tech kind of difference in how we view our identity and what we view as like a part of our identity. Because I feel like these older generations, but also people who just generally are not extremely on the internet like we are. Um, They probably view things like Facebook and Twitter and these things as tools and Mm. as um, means to an end, the end being, you know, contact with your friends. Whereas for us, your Facebook profile, your Instagram profile, your whatever profile, that's a part of you. That's a part of, like, our identity And similarly with like our personal devices, with our phones, it's like, this is my phone and it is an extension of myself. So for someone else to come and say, oh, could I just use your phone to look something up? It's like, no. Yeah. Tell Um, me what you need to look up. I'll look it up for you. (laughs) Tell me what you need. Yeah. And I get this a lot as well, like sitting with older work colleagues and like when they type their passwords in. They just go ahead and type their password in in front of me. And I have to, like, whoa, avert my eyes kind of thing. And they look at me all weird, like, what are you doing? Yeah, well, like, even when I worked retail, like, I made a point of looking away when people put in their PIN number. And I always have some customers who are like, you don't have to look away. It's like, it is so easy to steal your card, though. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I'm not going to. But, like, yeah. this is showing you that I am not going to do crime on you, right? <laughs> like, this, this is social signaling here. Just let me do it. <laughs> yeah. The awkward pause when, like, I, I'm in a lot of situations where I have to, well, I don't have to, I'm in a lot of situations where I end up um, having to show colleagues how to do things in terminal because mm. it, it looks scary. Like, it's, it's generally it, it pretty It is scary. Terrible. Thank you. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm like saying commands and they just give me their keyboard and they're like, oh, you just go. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it's got something to do with how we view like these devices as literally Mm -hmm. extensions of our personal selves rather than like a a hammer you would pick up to 
yeah. like a nail in. Yeah. And I think also like where we assume we have privacy in our life, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I think mm-hmm. for us, we very much assume that like our Facebook messages, like our you know, messages on any kind of like social media, those things are private. Those things are ours. And those are things that we have complete control over. Yeah. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, notwithstanding. Whereas I think for people who have shared Facebook accounts, for example, my auntie and her husband have that, they don't have private, yeah, like, there's not that assumption of privacy from everyone, even your partner on those things. And, like, certainly Mm -hmm. I've had partners who, like, I don't care if they look over my shoulder while I'm on Facebook because, like, there's no major secrets I have from them, right? Yeah. But there is that baseline assumption that no one else will, like, like, go into your room and mess it up, basically, (laughs) right? Like... (laughs) just like this is yeah. mine and no one else touches it thank mm-hmm. you <laughs> yeah have you have you ever like either been in someone else's account for something or like started a brand new like youtube account or something and the content that is automatically served is just horrific wasn't there something written recently about how like the bad youtube algorithm is why so many people are flat earthers now yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, so we can go into that. <laughs> Do you know more about that than me? Because um, I just uh, like I think I just read the title of an article. Right. So the YouTube algorithm is quite similar to a lot of other social media algorithms, but the YouTube one specifically is quite uh, how do I say potent <laughs> and um, effective because hmm. Okay, I can tell you about when when I started the whole YouTube channel experiment thing. I created a new YouTube account, and it wasn't linked to my Gmail. I created a whole new Google account, and off that spawned a whole new YouTube account, because I wanted to keep things pretty separate. So, yeah, new YouTube account, cool. Uh, go onto the YouTube landing page, uh, your usual, like, you know, they give you different topics of things that you might want to watch, and... Honestly, it was kind of shocking and jarring and gross. Like, the videos that were given to me, I must have been so accustomed to generally being okay with the videos served to me by the algorithm under my own account, Mm. that when I logged in as someone completely new, the default videos were just really, like, gross to me. Yeah. And there was, was a lot of, like super trashy kind of not to say like trashy videos aren't good but it was just really jarring and I didn't know how much the algorithm was influencing me and affecting me and conditioning me to be uh okay with a certain type of content until I like went into a brand new YouTube account um but basically what their algorithm prioritizes is uh engagement and what they do is um it's kind of like when you read a blog post or an article and at the, at the bottom there's like, you might also like, or like related articles, related posts. So YouTube does that, but on steroids. Because they've got their autoplay thing, for one. So mm. it's very easy to be like, oh, I'm curious, you know, I have a light curiosity about this thing that I heard the other day and to look it up on YouTube and watch like a two minute video and you're like, oh, okay, cool. And what YouTube will do is queue up a slightly more extreme version of the video that you just watched Mm. and autoplay it next. And this is the YouTube rabbit hole, which is like you'll start by watching like a very mild video about 
maybe uh, Middle East, like what's happening in the Middle East. Just give me a, a really light overview. And then you'll dig down and suddenly you're like 10 layers deep into a conspiracy theory and you have like a weird obsession about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it's just, but that's what YouTube has found um, sucks people in yeah. is to really guide people through these funnels of rabbit holes. And I think it's worth stressing that there is no human architecting this. Like, there's there's not, like, a YouTube engineer that's like, okay, let's make some flat-earth conspiracy theorists. Let's do that. There's no YouTube engineer that's like, I want to create more MRAs out there. You know, I want to put fuel on the fire for Gamergate. There's no one that I know, I'm pretty sure, there's no YouTube engineers that are thinking this. Um, but what they are optimizing for is watch time and engagement. And as it so happens to turn out that the best way to do that uh, is to just let people go down these more and more extreme videos on a certain viewpoint, even if they started with a very mild viewpoint. There's a Turkish-American journalist, Zeynep Tufekci, and she writes for the New York Times. Sometimes I think she's a professor somewhere, I forget. Uh, but she has some really, really great writing and journalism on this topic on the topic of YouTube extremism and how YouTube drives extremism. So I would definitely recommend reading some of her articles. But yeah, it's it's kind of scary. <laughs> um, and what's scary is just how, just how convincing YouTube is. Like, I'm not a flat earther, great, but I have like a, like almost 10 step Korean skincare routine now. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Wait, did I not tell you about this? Um, I mean, you probably have, but you didn't tell me it was 10 steps. Uh, it's not quite 10 steps. <laughs> I don't think I, I definitely do not have the patience to do the whole thing. But about two years ago, my sister was showing me some, some skincare videos that she got into. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And we just watched them together. This was during the holidays. So we watched it for like the entire day and the entire night. And then the next day I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll try some of this stuff out. And I got like... Two hundred dollars worth of skincare stuff for her and me, and now I put like all these different groups on my face every day and every night, and that's ridiculous. That's like incredible behavior change. That's so wild. Yeah, I'm I'm very used to ignoring the YouTube algorithm because there's like three channels that I actually like watching what they put out, and otherwise I'll generally watch um like just. Let's plays of video games from like a couple of channels because I know they're not giant misogynists. Mm -hmm. But YouTube sees that and they're like, "Oh, you like gaming?" And they'll recommend to me the all these like awful video game videos and channels, and I'm just like, "No, I don't like those. This no. is fine. Like, I'm gonna just keep searching for the stuff I know I like and that mm -hmm. is recommended to me by friends, and I'll just watch that." But thank you, YouTube algorithm. So like, I'm just very used to just being like, "No, let's not autoplay." Like. <laughs> I don't have time for this YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it is quite disconcerting when you get glimpses of um, what's in the other bubbles on YouTube, especially in things like gaming and sometimes um, political videos. You'll get like, you know, in the sidebar on the right hand side mm. where there's just like a whole bunch of videos, you'll get glimpses of stuff. Like I, I watched a gaming video. I think it must have been like a review or something. And on the right hand side, there was um, a thumbnail of just a dude vlogging. And the title was something about, like, uh, Anita Scarsese and how 
feminists are crazy or something. And it was like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. Mm. And yet here we are. You know, it's the algorithm. Um, One of my favorite things about computers really is that they learn how to do, essentially how they learn how to do things. Um, And so I pulled up some of the um, specification gaming examples in AI, which has been put together by Victoria Krakowna. Um, And it's stuff like you set up a robotic arm that is being trained to slide a block to a target position on a table. The robotic arm solves this problem by moving the table. (laughs) I do love that. There's so many, like, examples of AI solving a problem in a way that you wouldn't expect. AI, trained to classify skin lesions as potentially cancerous, learns Mm -hmm. that lesions photographed next to a ruler are more likely to be malignant. Boom. Um, my, my like far and away favorite one is an AI in an artificial life simulation where Mm. survival required energy, but giving birth did not. One species (laughs) evolved a lifestyle that consisted mostly of mating in order to produce new children, which could be eaten. Oh my God. So good. Yeah. (laughs) Well, these are a really good example of just how dangerous AI can be. Like right now. All the big businesses are gushing over AI and putting, like, quote-unquote AI in everything, which is basically just neural networks, machine learning, a very specific kind of AI. But it's a really good collection of examples to tell you that what might come out might not be what you expect and might not be what you want. It's a dangerous game we're playing if we're increasingly relying on machine learning to make a bunch of our decisions yeah and it's stuff like computers don't learn how we learn but because computers are getting very good at learning things we're now just like oh yeah they're just like simple people and so something that we'd see where we're like okay like if something's next to a ruler the ruler is clearly not part of the image a computer is like when they're photographed next to a ruler they're more likely to be cancerous (laughs) right but i think that's clearly because, a symptom. <laughs> yeah, but like that's that's the kind of pitfall um, of AI is that like we as human beings we have a lot of training data. We have training data from the moment that we're born, and we get an incredible amount of sensory information, like just orders of magnitude more than any AI training data could possibly have. And so we have that extra data to say, oh. A ruler is not relevant in the situation. Whereas when we build these algorithms, uh, when we build these machines and programs to try and learn a thing, and this is the thing you'll hear a lot about machine learning, is that we'll impart our own biases unknowingly. And we do that because like, in a lot of ways, our biases are invisible to us. But in other ways, even when the biases are visible to us, we have enough training data as humans to know that that bias is unwanted and not a desired state. Whereas when we feed it to an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm, it doesn't have that extra data to know what to ignore and what not to ignore. So it will often and in some very uncomfortable ways, highlight the biases that we have. Like a couple of years ago, um, so Google has ridiculous machine learning on all of the photos that you take on an Android phone, basically. And you can do things like you can search for someone's name and their face will pop up. 
and all the photos that they're in will pop up, which is amazing and incredible. But there was a controversy a few years ago where if you like search for oh no, if you search for the search term gorilla, they give you images of black people. And it's just like, holy shit. That's horrific. Yeah, I have... Uh, there's so much There's so much problematic stuff with this. The thing is that, like, how do you legislate for something like that is what I think about a lot as well. Because when you have bad decisions go down in any company, usually you can, like, find people or a person or a group to blame for said decision and persecute and say, hey, that was bad, you will be punished, no more of that. Thank you. But in the case of machine learning, like, literally no human is making these decisions directly. And even the the people programming these these algorithms don't understand what's going on. And I think this is the thing that the general public really needs to know is that when you get a very complex machine learning algorithm, literally no one knows how it's working. Like, no one knows. <laughs> the, the people who made it don't know what's going on. The only thing they have control over are some parameters of the program, the fitness function, and the training data. Mm-hmm. And so when you have programmers who don't know what's going on inside their program, it's like, how do you place adequate and reasonable uh, controls on that? And and how do you say, okay, we have the responsibility to to do these things that are not going to harm people, but how do you enforce that responsibility when programmers themselves don't know what's going on? I don't know. I've kind of gone off on a tangent, but there's <clears throat> machine learning is just... A wild time. It's very much already having an impact in our lives. I think it's quite easy to go like, oh, machine learning, oh, AI, like those are not things that are directly impacting us. But even if you ignore things like, you know, self-driving cars are inching their way into society. Oh, yeah. Things like the YouTube algorithm, things like Netflix's, like, things you'll like predictor, like Mm -hmm. all of those, like, Google's targeted ads, right? Like, all of those are ways that machine learning and AI are starting to have an impact in your life. There's a lot of people who would never claim they would never get in a self-driving car, but it's like, you've got traction control in most modern cars. That is a precursor. You you know, that's like, that's kind of the very similar technology where there is a computer inside your car. In all modern cars now, there is a computer inside your car. In all modern cars now, the computer decides, uh, probably not in all modern cars, in most modern cars that I've seen, there is a computer, and the computer has control over whether or not the engine switches on. And then it's like, okay, that's cool, because then you can have a key that you just have in your pocket, and you don't have to stick it in anywhere and turn anything. You just have it in your pocket, sit in the car, press a button, the engine turns on, awesome. There's a computer making that decision. And computers are, um, how you say, hackable. (laughs) (laughs) So to the people who are really worried about self-driving cars, I'd be more worried about the computers in your cars right now. But like the flip side of that is that the self-driving cars are actually more safe than humans. So 
you know, it's it's this kind of uncomfortable uh, reckoning that we have to come to deal with. And this is, I think, something we talked about in our very first episode, right? Like, mm, mm-hmm. the ethics of self-driving cars is fundamentally different to how humans drive. And yeah. the fact that we can control, essentially, those ethics, like, that raises huge amounts of problems. And, like, it's still it's still an ongoing discussion about, like, if a self-driving car hits and kills someone, mm. who is to blame? Mm-hmm ultimately like it's it's manslaughter sure but like yeah who did the manslaughter <laughs> or if a self-driving car is in a situation where someone will die who dies like who does it choose from a from a capitalist perspective i think that's generally quite obvious and it is not the person inside the car <laughs> right but they still get like there, there'll still be situations where it's like i can swerve one way or swerve the other way you know the trolley problem the trolley problem yeah. is real here. Can I just say how happy I am that the good place exists <laughs> and is a yes. a thing in mainstream media in our culture and is a thing that people watch and is about ethics. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy about that because God, we need it. We we absolutely need it in our day and age. Yeah, there. Um, one of the recent episodes was about uh the guy who was trying to live the best life but was mm-hmm. just exceedingly unhappy in doing so because he he was essentially like doing everything he could to you know be a good person but that was not in any way shape or form making him happy in a lot of ways it was making him very miserable mm. for some sort of like i mean not in the context of the show the good place but like realistically it's for a very uncertain payoff right mm-hmm. like and that sort of question about like how how we are good is like it's i think people have a limited number of driving ethical principles mm-hmm. and those can either be that goodness that like you know utility um for want of a better term mm-hmm comes out of how much good they put into the world or alternatively that goodness comes out of how much good they themselves accrue essentially like how happy they personally are and those two approaches can be interlinked but like those are essentially the two approaches you have to the world you're either external facing or internal facing and like how you're trying to accrue happiness essentially and happiness Mm -hmm. is a very ethereal and difficult concept to accrue because you know you don't necessarily get that from being rich like Mm -hmm. certainly not being poor is a huge impact on poverty like i def on happiness sorry like i definitely don't ascribe to like the idea that you know money can't buy happiness it's like what it can buy is stability and that is happiness right like i cannot understate how much stress I suddenly did not have in my life after buying a house and that is because I no longer had to worry about rent yeah or even like getting a job yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and stuff like yeah sure now I have just like a lot of ant bait in my lounge (laughs) because an ant nest is somewhere and I have to kill it now and that's not great but like that is in no way comparable to the stress and the negative impact it had on my mental health to not know where I was going to live next year and so like yeah money's a part of that right but like how we perceive our role in the world and how yeah what we value 
essentially, mm. right? And um, I think this is this is a conversation we have a lot on the show, <laughs> where like I'm probably more more of an optimist in the sense that like I genuinely believe that pretty much everyone in the world has the best interests of other people. Like they value yeah. Yeah. the interests of other people. They don't always value it as much as they value their own interests. And sometimes they genuinely believe that the best interests of other people are best served by, I don't know, taxing the rich less. Because, again, they genuinely believe that that creates more jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think like that isn't a question of like ethics or morality of people. I think it's a question of those logic chains, right? And like just taking a step back and going like, okay, like you choose to vote for a political party that puts refugees on tropical gulags because you genuinely believe that that is the best thing for you, for your community, and to an extent for those refugees as well, right? Yeah, it's probably a a lack of experience or perspective rather than malice. Yeah, I would would argue misbalancing as well, right? Mm. Because, like, it cannot be denied, and I very, very quickly want to say, Nauru and Manus are terrible, bring them here – Having offshore detention centres, by preventing refugees who have travelled by boat to get to Australia, there have been fewer refugees in boats and there have been fewer refugees that have died by drowning because of those boats. Because often they're like, they're ripped off by people smugglers. Like, they're put into these awful situations. And I mean, I personally think a way to solve that is to increase Australia's refugee quota and just be like you know yep. what don't come by boat here's a big old jet plane that you can come over on yeah i think that's the best way to solve that they're gonna leave like they're gonna leave somehow yeah like they need to get out of horrible situation they're in so yeah but the the important thing that has changed and like this is something that i think you hear from a lot of australians who vote for the liberal party is that Nauru and Manus have been good for refugees and asylum seekers because it has decreased their ability to be ripped off by people smugglers and drown in the South Southeast China Sea or whichever sea they come across, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like that is why they believe in that. That is why they think that is a good thing. Like and to them that is the best thing. Whereas, like, all of the other tangential facts of Madison Nauru, the fact that there was, like, a woman who had a caesarean who was only given paracetamol for it, right? Fuck. Yeah. All of those are mm. by the by, because the most important thing to them was to both, like, safeguard Australia for Australians, yeah, xenophobia, but also that fewer people died and fewer people were ripped off by people smugglers, and they see that as having been the tangible outcome from, you know, quote-unquote, mm. stopping the boats. Ethics mm-hmm. is complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of thing is a bit worrying to me because it makes me think, like, if you lack the experience or lack the knowledge of understanding what it's like to be in a situation so bad that you would upend your entire life and go somewhere completely different, where they don't speak your language, where no one looks like you, but you're willing to do that because you need to get out of your situation. If people lack the the understanding or even the knowledge of that kind of situation, um, then the logical kind of conclusion is to say, oh, drowning in the sea is much worse and 
coming here by a different means, by a more legitimate means, or staying in your home country will be better. And so, sure, by all means, like, that might seem like the ethical conclusion to come to, but that's change when you have either knowledge or more of a deeper understanding of really what the risks are in their hometown, in in the place that they're trying to escape from. And so that will change up the equation a bit. So I guess, like, from my perspective, and again, my limited knowledge, the conclusion that I'll come to is they can die trying to get get out of their situation into onto safer land via boat, or they can certainly, for sure, die where they are. And in that equation, like, shit, you choose the boat, right? I think as well it's legitimately hard to conceptualize that degree of suffering if you've never experienced it. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And that doesn't come into the equation. And so the moral judgment that comes out of that is sound. But th- that's the thing that kind of worries me is that whenever there's this, whenever you see a, a reasonable conclusion that is wrong, I often look back on myself and the decisions and the conclusions that I make and think, shit, what information am I missing? Am I making, am I coming to the wrong ethical conclusions on things? And what information am I missing? Because absolutely, I know for sure there is so much information in the world and I know for sure that I'm missing a large portion of that. So, you know, that's a little bit of self-existential existential crisis, uh, which is always nice. Love that. Um, and I'd agree, like, everyone is generally good. Everyone makes decisions without malice and generally believes that the things that they are doing is either good or not as bad as everyone else says it is. Yeah. And I mean, the, the obvious example as well, right, being that, yeah. I hate to go here at this point, but like Hitler got a lot of his ideas from the current science and political approaches of the USA. Like the reason Mm. that eugenics stopped kind of being a thing is because Hitler was the bad guy. And before that, everyone was like, eugenics is fine. Why don't we just like forcibly neuter people because they shouldn't have kids? Like eugenics is a good idea, I think. Um, And the reason it fell out of favour is literally Hitler. And, like, you know, can't thank Hitler for a lot of things. The genocide was pretty bad. But um, what we can do is just be like, thank God that eugenics fell out of favour because of Hitler, right? Because otherwise, like, we would probably have a lot more elements of that in society. Like, there would Hmm. be... There's still talk, like there's still awful people in the world and there's still like neo-Nazis that exist, right? But there's, I suspect, a lot less discussion of like eugenics-y topics and miscegenation, which is like a horrible fucking word, like than there would have been had we not so strongly associated eugenics with Hitler, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I guess my question is how do we learn those lessons without killing so many people because i feel like we're we're on the precipice of another one of those kinds of technological um cycles where where we've got everything being extremely on the internet and everything being extremely powered by 
algorithms that no one understands. How do we try and avoid those horrific pitfalls without having to learn it the hard way? And it's it's so frustrating because I feel like there are so many, well, not enough, but there there are people who are warning us of the potential dangers of these new technologies and warning everyone to be careful. But they are a pin drop in this huge, loud crowd of people who need to make money. And what, what makes the money is just unfederated, eyes shut, head first. Conflict. Conflict makes money. Conflict causes drama, and that's what we all tune into, right? Like, Well, not necessarily conflict, but like just engage, just eyes, attention. Attention is what makes people money, because the whole world runs on ads. The entire internet business model runs on ads, so it's attention, and conflict will drive that attention. And on top of that, we've got the whole like climate change, global warming thing happening, so it's... It's an interesting time to be alive, that's for sure. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> We've got 12 years, guys. Yeah, this has kind of gone off of topic of like what we no, were talking about. That's, in the that's fine. No, I'm thinking again about how like we have unprecedented access to information and that has resulted in unprecedented access to misinformation. Yeah. And straight up lies. And incredibly widespread mental health problems yeah for people i think in our generation and in the uh upcoming generations specifically so last week i was speaking with a friend about how weird it is and we were talking about this before we started recording just how weird it is that millennial culture is being sad (laughs) and depressed and anxious all the time And we do it kind of performatively, but also kind of not. Like, we do it to be (laughs) ironic, but also, actually, we're not being ironic. It's pretty real. We're all pretty sad. And it's it's so strange that, like, we will, ironically, but also unironically, be proud of each other and congratulate each other for doing the bare minimum to stay alive as a human being. Like, you drank water today proud of you you go you got up today you got out of bed today you ate a meal you showered i love you you're doing great and i'm proud of you like i'm saying that ironically but also i am genuinely proud (laughs) and how like fucked up that is like how absolutely bizarre that is like i will eat a meal that is primarily vegetables and think you did good serena you did good today (laughs) you you kept your body slightly healthier than like fuck last night you know what my dinner was it was half a packet of tim tams and a bag of burger rings and that was like totally fine yeah i got drunk and ate pizza last night like yeah it it's kind of bizarre like we're in it so it it feels kind of normal and we joke about it and like depression is kind of like a meme and a punchline as well as being an incredibly real and bad problem for our generation but when you step back it's like wow this is absolutely bizarre yeah so there are two sort of things that i want to say surrounding that and the first one is like i 
in a lot of respects, I suspect that the, like, perceived increase in, like, mental health issues is simply having words for what we are experiencing. Yes, yes. And I think this particularly when looking at something like PTSD, for example, which was thought previously to be the sole purview of soldiers coming home from war. And even then, a lot of them didn't get diagnosed. Whereas, like, I have post-traumatic stress disorder because, like, I was raped and I was sexually assaulted by, like, really close friends. And even when you look at things written by women who are our age in the 80s, they would say, like, I didn't realise that, like, at the time that that was rape. I didn't realise mm, yeah. that that was that. And, like, saying sort of in hindsight, like, I realised that that dramatically changed my life and how I approach relationships, but I never knew how to talk about it. Mm. So, like, I suspect, like, a lot of these issues have been widespread for generations. We just haven't known how to kind of talk about them or we haven't like labeled them the way we label them today and i know for me that label is empowering Mm -hmm. but i don't know what kind of impact that has at like a broader population level the other thing is like we've got no fucking jobs no wonder we're all sad like (laughs) yeah we've got so little security we've got so little money many of us are working multiple jobs at a time like we are constantly hustling Mm -hmm. and like some of this is stuff like the gig economy um but a lot of it is stuff like people aren't retiring. Yeah, we're not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, like, there's more of us than of a lot of older previous generations. There's fewer relative jobs. Like, our dollars are worth less comparatively. Mm. And no one's fucking retiring. Yeah. <laughs> like, I made the joke a couple of times, like, you know, when I was studying in academia, it's like, yeah, the way you get a job is someone dies right? Like, some lab head dies, which means a postdoc moves up, which means I have a postdoc available to me. Like, that's literally it. Because scientists don't fucking retire. Like, Mm. a lot of the most prominent professors I know are, like, you know, 65 plus, right? That means that we don't get promoted. That means we don't get higher paying jobs. And that means we continue to rent, which is, like, so, oh, God, just... Yeah. I don't want I don't want to be a dick about renting because like I'm really aware that I own my own house but like something that really impacted me when I was coming up to buying my own place which I could do because my grandma died and my parents supported me right like it was inheritance and parents yeah and I really just want to be clear about that like no one should feel bad about not being able to own a house like that's how people buy houses these days the market yeah the market's fucking wild like But I was feeling increasingly like I was paying someone for the honor of living in like a shitty house that they didn't upkeep. Yeah. And it was just like, well, where is this money going? Like I'm paying you like over a hundred dollars a week to live in a house that you don't give a shit about. Like, what is the point of this? And that's money that you're never going to see again. It's money that you're not investing in something. It's not money that like mm-hmm. is going to make any meaningful change. It's just a cost in your life. Yeah. Like at least when I pay for food, right? Like I'm going to get some use out yeah. of that. When I pay yeah. for power, I get use out of that. But rent, you don't really get like ongoing meaningfulness out of rent. And houses aren't for sale and houses cost a lot wherever you want to live. And it's just like ah, there's so many expenses and so few jobs and I'm real Mm. mad about it. Yeah. Not to say, right, that, like, you know, life was better in the olden days because it fucking wasn't. Being gay was illegal in Tasmania until, like, the 90s. That's wild. Mm. Socially, we're in a much better place. Financially. And and even socially, right? Like, I Mm. say that recognising that, like, trans women are killed just all the time. 
being queer in Australia is the worst, even if you're in like the really, um, really cool socially progressive neighborhoods. Like it's not a total picnic in New Zealand. Um, I follow mm-hmm. Scout on Twitter and he is currently pregnant and he has just been getting so much flack for that, for being pregnant and taking he, him pronouns. Like, and it's like, it's not your fucking business. Mate, yeah, just so. mind your own business. God. I, I told you about how um, Greg and I went to open homes one weekend, right? Did I tell you yeah. that? All the houses were were incredibly expensive, like 700k, 800k for this tiny two-bedroom little thing. They were all bad houses. They were all cold and damp, and they all needed work. Some of them significant work, and they were mm. all going for 700k, 800k, 900k. Um, the houses that were like in slightly better shape were north of 900 ish, like pushing a mill. And it's like, no, we can't. Like, we're not going to get ourselves into like a mortgage is a thing that you have for most of your life, right? And it's like, yeah. we're not going to get ourselves into that to buy a shitty house to to live in somewhere that's worse than where we live now just so we can say oh i can put a nail in the wall (laughs) i can put a poster up like that's not going to happen so you know renting for life or or and this is my dream this is my like far-fetched dream is that me and maybe like i don't know five other yo pro friends will go all in on a piece of land in central wellington and build a really high quality apartment building dense housing yes and then we can all live in this apartment building and then we can rent out the other rooms and then we can have like a cute little cafe on the ground floor and like a cute little rooftop bar someone just give me 10 mil just a cool 10 mil i'll make it happen (laughs) dm me um something i found really empowering about like both like living alone but also owning the space is like I'm finally in a position where I can like help people that I care about so like a lot of my friends have pretty good living situations now which is really good like there are some suburbs in Melbourne which are very affordable and Melbourne doesn't get cold enough for like the kind of issues you have in Wellington to be a huge problem Mm. but it's stuff like if a friend's accommodation falls through and you know like I'm on a non-binary discord server and they'll say something about it I can be like oh just come stay on my couch yeah really not an issue like I get to make these choices (laughs) um and that's that's really good like I feel really good about that but also it's it's frustrating to still not be in a position where I can just like really help my community if that makes sense Mm. I'm still like I'm earning a lot more than I was in my PhD, which means I can pay my mortgage and then be broke for the rest of the month. <laughs> like, cool. That's, that's kind of the outcome. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some months over half my income goes to like mortgage and bills. Mm-hmm. Cool. Guess I am eating more beans this month. <laughs> beans are good. Beans are good. Dig beans. I always feel really good about myself when I eat beans. <laughs> Brooklyn Nine Nine makes me really happy when it like goes into sort of internet culture and um politeness like there was a there's an episode in the recent season where captain raymond holt is texting oh my god yes 
Dear Jake, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. regards. <laughs> Sincerely, Raymond Holt. <laughs> and it makes me very happy. Yeah. My parents don't do that. My parents use like completely inscrutable shortening of text language, and I'm just like, who are you? That's that's totally the other yeah the other end of the spectrum. It's like I can't decipher this. No one can decipher this. One of my favorite jokes on Brooklyn Nine Nine is when Jake is like, oh, I've got it, and he goes to his computer and he's like. Cool. Entered in my password. <laughs> yes. Good role model. Good good role model. That is a long and strong password. <laughs> <laughs> Big dick energy. God damn it. You heard it here first, folks. Jake Peralta has big dick energy. <laughs> As does Amy Santiago. As does Amy Santiago. Bigger dick energy. Oh. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. That's the other <laughs> weird thing about internet culture these days is that, like, we'll say a string of words that doesn't mean anything, <laughs> and everyone will laugh, and that's meme culture. <laughs> like, it's the same with, um, you know, those Tumblr posts where someone will say something and someone else will reply with just like a screenshot, a still image from a vine. Mm. And it's like a fucking hieroglyph. Like, you see the image and you know exactly, to such a specific degree, exactly what they mean. It's like an image of, like, this dude making a face and you're like, I know what he's saying. Road works ahead. I sure, sure hope, hope it does. does. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> and it's just this kind of, like, information communication on a level that I've just I don't have anything else to compare it to communicating in forms of memes is so incredibly efficient so efficient like you're getting so much information about the vibe and the tone and the facial expression and the feeling of what you're trying to say in literally either like a sentence or just a still image and that is wild to me Means future of communication. And stuff like it's been really. So, XKCD, which I'm sure everyone reads, Mm -hmm. I'm just finding the one that has been genuinely really helpful to me in explaining how I feel to people. Who sends the first text more often? XKCD 2065. There are some friends where it's fine that I always text first. These are friends where I have a good rhythm with. These are friends who are bad at remembering when we need to record a podcast serena <laughs> um, no, it's fine you're really good that's me <laughs> um, uh, like, my life is in shambles i don't know how i'm surviving <laughs> <laughs> look i'm proud of you for having dinner last night even if it was Tim thank Dams. you thank you i'm proud of me too i could have just not eaten <laughs> sometimes i just forget to shower for days yeah it's fine but there are some friends where I get really uncomfortable when I'm always texting first, when I'm always doing the work to, like, hang out. And this is XKCD, which is just, like, a mm. bar graph which explains the different parts on it. And whenever I get uncomfortable with friends who I always have to do, like, the legwork for us to spend time together and I feel like they're just, like, kind of being polite about it or they don't mm. really like me, I can now send them this image and be like, here is my problem. <laughs> yeah. I will no longer text first. Thank you. <laughs> I think humans are very 
visual. Like, obviously, language and written language is useful to our society currently, but fundamentally, we're very visual creatures. And so to have graphs, to have images that we can be like, this thing is important, this is how we feel. Mm. Here is a picture of the guy from the Why You Always Lying vine. <laughs> At myself. I don't know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> At me, why am I like this? Yeah, I was thinking about this last night. Do you reckon that in our generation we're lonelier? I think we are more conscious of what loneliness is Mm -hmm. similar to how i feel about like mental illness in previous generations i think people in previous generations were as fundamentally lonely as we are i think we're more conscious of what loneliness is and why we feel a particular way and we're conscious that we don't want to or we feel like we shouldn't be feeling that way right Mm. that's a good point yeah (laughs) because oh last night um Friday night, everyone else partying. Uh, I'm just like lying in bed, interneting, and I can hear outside my window our neighbors hanging out. I love them. I think they sound like such cool and chill people, and I would love to be friends with them. This sounds so sad, <laughs> <laughs> but I was just reminded of how, like, I haven't really hung out with friends in the past, like maybe half a year. Like, I've seen friends, and I've spent time with them, but it was always under the context of, like, oh, we're going to the same conference, or, like, someone's leaving for a while, we have to catch up. In the past few months, I haven't spontaneously just hung out with friends. And that made me kind of sad. And I'm thinking now about how maybe, and this is a total, like, theory, but perhaps maybe 10, 20 years ago, People had less friends, but more frequent contact and deeper and more meaningful contact with a smaller group of people. Whereas now I feel like we have a lot of friends. Like I I have a lot of people that I would consider my friend. But like Sophia, I think you're probably one of the friends that I talk to the most and the most regularly. Because everyone... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're my, yeah, you're my favorite too Serena is that where this was going <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's like thinking about it it's like wow like the people that I would consider my really close friends I haven't seen in a meaningful way in months and the touch points that I do have with my friends are always fleeting they're always like you know we'll get lunch every now and then we'll um go to a bar after work every half a year and it's kind of strange and I wonder I do wonder if it's a generational thing or if it's just us being more aware because I wonder if back a couple of generations people maybe had less friends and less touch points but deeper and more meaningful interactions whereas now it's just like I feel like I have a really large group of friends that I would that you know that whom I love and who I would consider my friend, who I care about, I just don't see them. <laughs> and it's kind of weird, yeah. Well, if you think, like, in the time before social media, you would have had to have physically spent time with people, or at yeah. the very least, like, call them on their home phone line, fuck, yeah. um, in order to know what was happening in their lives. Whereas now we don't have to. Like, I feel connected with a much larger group of people. And, I mean, like, this is really good for me, like, particularly – and the fact that, like, I haven't been able to go out as much. 
mm. um, over the last like year plus. But I can still feel like I'm connected to my friends because I see how they're doing. Like I see their yeah. updates on social media. And to me, that's like quite a meaningful connection a lot of the time. Like I like physically spending time with people. Like that is my preferred way to see people. But I don't see being happy about someone's life events on Facebook as being any less a genuine happiness, if that makes sense. No, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, like, I definitely come from a position where, like, I have a lot of friends and I care deeply about a lot of them. And that's difficult a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, something something that kind of changed recently was, so there was there's a circle of friends um, who catch up to play, like, board games and, like, Mario Kart and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, every, every couple of weeks. And that's just hanging out. And that is so nice and so wholesome and just genuinely kept me sane for so much of my PhD. Mm. Um, and there was a particular person in that circle of friends who always made sure that I was included because a lot of them had known each other since high school or primary school, right? Like, yeah, I moved to Melbourne, like, four years ago, man. I don't know anyone that much. Um, and this guy always made sure that I was included, would, like, add me to Facebook messaging groups would like, you know, make sure that I knew when things were going on and that I went along. Mm. Um, and probably around a month ago now, um, that friend died. Oh, fuck. And it wasn't, it wasn't sudden. Like it was expected. And I mm. in no way was as close to them as the rest of the group. And so I just kind of, you know, stepped back and said like, Hey, if you guys need anything, I'm here for you. Um, but mm. something that I've noticed is that as I've gone back to having regular board game things again, there's no one that's making sure that I'm included. Yeah. Mm. And that's that's really difficult because like, I don't want to push my way into that circle. And I certainly don't want to push my way into that circle when they're probably still having a lot of difficult emotions right now. Yeah. But it also made it very obvious how how important it is to have that person. Yeah. Mm. You know, who like who cares deeply about a lot of people, who makes sure that people are included. And like I, I forget where I'm going with this, but it was something about like nice people being Yeah. Good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's that's broadly the synthesis of that was like nice people are good. <laughs> yeah. I think something that I really want to work on more is reaching out to friends. Because I get that that same kind of anxiety that, like, if I reach out to someone and ask to hang out with them, I'm imposing on them. Yeah. And, like, shit, especially in our age group, everyone's busy. Mm. So busy all the time. And with not just, like, busy for the sake of it, but, like, busy with their own shit. Um, Everyone's doing really cool shit. Everyone's hustling because we're all fucking hustling. (laughs) So... Like, I, I feel very nervous about about asking for people's time to not do anything productive. Like, we're not going to meet and, like, go over our talks for this upcoming conference. We're not going to meet to talk about work. Let's just hang out and, mm. like, not do anything. <laughs> and And it's difficult to do that. But I know that I need to do that more because a lot of the times it is just overcoming that weird anxiety and saying to someone hey let's hang out and actually follow up on that shit I like I've said to so many people we need to catch up we need to hang out more 
and just haven't followed up on it because of that that kind of anxiety of oh my god am I imposing on this person do they actually not like are they too busy is this not a good time do they secretly secretly think I'm a dick yeah 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 stuff like that yeah (laughs) um and like I I very much have the thing where like I'm I'm an introvert right like I'm I'm outgoing I'm chatty but socially interacting with people drains me yeah and so yeah I want to spend time with people where we sit on opposite ends of my couch and read a book and I don't want you to talk to me very much and I will talk to you when I want to and like that that's what I want to do and it's so difficult just like contacting people and just be like hey do you want to come over and like read a book and not talk very much yeah Yeah. like hang out in a way that like works yeah but it's not how we do why is this so hard? <laughs> it just seems it just seems like such a natural thing that like we as humans should be able to do. We're social creatures. We should know how to do this. And we obviously like want to hang out with people more IRL in meat space. But why is it so hard? Yeah, and I, I mean I I think that's a lot of the time why we end up having quite good friends through work, for example, is because mm. you're spending most of your time there, you're spending a lot of your time interacting with them. And if they're not mm. shitheads, then, like, you get along with them. <laughs> yeah. And there's, like, zero obligations kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is also how we're more fraught because, like, you can't have huge giant fights with colleagues that you then need to work with in the future. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Well, I know what I'm doing this weekend and it is sorting my life out and maybe sending <laughs> a few messages to a few people and see if they want to hang out next weekend. That's what I'm going to do. What were we talking about again? Technology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is weird to be a human in the age of technology. Life is strange. Life is strange before the storm. Technology is weird. No one knows how to make friends. Don't touch my goddamn computer screen. Those yes. are the key pieces that came out of today's episode. As usual, it has been a long and rambling discussion, but generally I think like these kind of conversations about technology and ethics tend to sit around a central theme that bears revisiting often regularly um and i think being self-critical about how we engage with other people computers and what things mean to us like what brings us happiness and why it does that and how we exist in today's world right like if climate change is going to ruin the entire planet in 12 years time we'd better figure out how to be happy and do that goddamn quickly um, because, you know, 12 years time, no more time for happiness, only time for fires. Oh god, so many fires, so many fires. As usual, you can contact us online. We are extremely online. Yeah, we are extremely online, we engage in social media, we're on Facebook as Things of Interest, um, we're on Twitter at Casting Interest, and you can email us, castinginterest at gmail.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Are we on Spotify? Did that, were you doing that? I was doing so Spotify has a very mysterious way of adding podcasts where you submit your podcast and they might add it at an undisclosed time in the future. So no, we're not on Spotify, but we are we should be on every major podcast provider. Yeah, and we might be on Spotify in the future. So if you're listening maybe. to this, like yeah, maybe we're on Spotify. Who fucking knows? Something that you could do as our wonderful listeners is tell a friend about this podcast. I think the more listeners we get, the higher chance there will be that we'll be on Spotify. So, (laughs) you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's something uh, that you could contribute to. Or, or even better, 
leave a review on your podcast consuming thing of choice. Yeah, I'd say those two things are equally good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either or, like whichever one you prefer. Um, we love hearing from you. We really do. And we would love to hear what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, if you have some opinions about things that we've said, we would love to hear all of that. So, If there's someone please. you reckon would be a great guest, like, yeah. we'll take that. We have thoughts, but like most of them are people that I know and can just text and be like, hey, come on the podcast. <laughs> so people from outside my social circle and Serena's social circle would be great. Yeah. I've been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. <laughs>